Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, where are we locally with COVID-19? Will Europe putting more restrictions on vaccine exports harm Canada? Is the federal government doing enough to curb anti-Asian racism? It's on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Welcome to Canada, where we pretend things are better than they really are. It's good for the image, but does nothing to protect against COVID-19. So, uh, how's your vaccination coming? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Is the boy getting cynical or is it me? Is he being a little... Is he... Yeah, yeah. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes as he has for... Hang on, let me set. Let me set. Hang on, let me see. Count, count the pages here. Hang on. Uh, week 53. All right. Uh, feel free to jump into the uh, fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. Uh, we've heard lots uh, in the last little, uh, in the last 24 hours or so uh, in regard to uh, vaccines, updates, shipments to Canada, and uh, stricter controls coming uh, from the European Union. Uh, the European Union uh, is falling behind even us in some situations as far as uh, getting its people vaccinated. And, of course, if you're living in those countries, you have to wonder why these uh, companies are sending the stuff out the door and selling it to other countries before getting their home countries uh, vaccinated, something that, uh, you know, people in Canada... Uh, are having a, a hard time uh, grappling with as well, uh, simply because it is we are the most, I think, second major purchaser of vaccine from Europe. So as soon as Canada starts to get a hold ahead of Europe, uh, you can imagine how the citizens of Europe feel, uh, considering uh, companies are selling the stuff and making money on it as opposed to taking care of their own citizens. Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and he is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. All right. Yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks very much for the time uh, to be on the show again. So what are your thoughts? Uh, obviously, you know, we've had this discussion a long time. Uh, Canada, uh, a lot of people saying, why don't you, does the world share? Why doesn't the world share? And, of course, it's the these individual countries that put millions, billions of dollars into discovering these vaccines. And, obviously, their priority, you'd think, is to look after their own citizens first. Now, Europe... Uh, more pressure on them to slow the stuff going out of uh, the European Union until they get their uh, own uh, citizens uh, vaccinated. I mean, at one time, Belgium was behind uh, Canada in getting vaccinated. So what are your thoughts on Europe putting restrictions on vaccines? Does that affect Canada? We have heard reports from the minister that this will not involve Canada. Mm, yeah, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, I think the other day we talked about this uh, you know, being as as much a political issue as a public health issue, and and this is where where we where we're getting into now, and, and you know, it's similar to you know the U.S. and the uh, the, the executive order that uh, Donald Trump implemented there, uh, but but yeah, it it does you know uh, seem to, you know if if they actually implement this, uh, you know, it it would potentially have a, a big impact uh, for Canada if if they. If, if, it, if it also applies to Canadian exports. And, and you'd have to say, well, 
why would they do it if they if they if it's not going to apply? You know, so so that's one of the things I would you know question is you know even though the you know the Canadian government is saying that it, that it won't uh, won't affect us, you know you'd you'd have to say well that that doesn't make any sense. Why would they if you know if they're exporting such a such quantities to to Canada, and and they're concerned about you know sort of the uh, the vaccines you know going to other countries and not being held within the EU. Why why would they let that let that still occur for Canada and uh, and and put the brakes on on other countries? So yeah, overall it it, it sounds like a you know a potentially has has some uh, you know impacts on on supply of vaccines for us. How could this not affect Canada if we are, in fact, the second biggest purchaser purchaser of vaccines out of the UK, or sorry, out of the European Union? Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's yeah, I definitely agree. It, it, you would have to say, well, you would have to if if this comes into play, you you would think that it would be a blanket uh, blanket restriction, and and it wouldn't, you know. Otherwise, they're sort of, you know, saying, you know, they're picking and choosing which countries they're letting things go to, and and I. You know, and, and and that would sort of undermine their their uh, reason for actually putting this uh, restriction in place. So so definitely, if that happens, uh, I, you would think that Canada would be affected as well. Uh, I'm looking at uh, one of the many uh, trackers, and you know, there's ver- the various uh, sources coming in from various uh, uh, sources. <laughs> and right now, we're showing Canada has broken up above 50, no doubt, with a vaccine a vaccine that has arrived this week. Uh, but Canada at 9.5%, the European Union at 9.4%. Canada has jumped ahead of Norway, France, Italy, Germany. That is not going to bode well for the people in those countries while we're sitting here purchasing all of the rest of the vaccine. Belgium still sitting at 57th. Netherlands at 58. Uh, at one time, Canada was behind all of these countries. Now we have moved ahead of them. So if you're a citizen in those countries, you're going to be asking some pretty important questions, aren't you? Um, yeah, you 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 would think you would think so. So so it, you know, the, this sort of news is 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 pretty worrying from from that perspective of uh, you know sort of even though we're in a global marketplace, uh, you know, countries uh, are still wanting to look after their own, their own citizens. So so it is a uh, pretty worrying uh, development if if it actually goes ahead. Can you see uh, a situation where Canada moves ahead? Well, we already have uh, ahead of the um, EU uh, with vaccination. And what does that? How does the world interpret that? How is the world going to view that? Mm. Well, well, you know, definitely, you know, uh, obviously, we 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 would like Canada to move ahead and and move ahead quickly and and uh, you know have a, a much larger portion of people vaccinated. So, so you know, that's. That's that's you know what what our goal is. Uh, it obviously if there is you know a, from a supply demand perspective you know if there's only a certain number of vaccines to go around uh, and we're we're uh, sort of being successful at uh, getting getting them getting a good proportion of them then countries that are falling behind will sort of say well how can we uh, how can we look after our own our own uh, citizens so so yes it's it's definitely you know something that uh, you know as a, as a as a global global issue global experiment if you if, if you like is uh, is is really you know coming to the fore and, and it comes back to that uh, that the whole issue that uh, you know the pandemic is a global pandemic and that that 
you know it won't be it won't be addressed until countries that are that are way behind or at the moment uh, are able to to get uh, more vaccines and so uh, and get their get their uh, communities uh, you know vaccinated to to a large extent and, and you know and, and that's going to even though you know the sort of European uh, countries in Europe and, and Canada, you know, we're, we're the wealthy countries. It, it's it's even more of a more of an issue for the uh, you know sort of uh, countries in Africa and and, uh, and countries through Asia where where their uh, you know their vaccination rates are very low at the moment. And so so it is uh, from a from a global perspective that that's why I think the uh, you know WHO and the, uh, the various mechanisms to try and you know, sort of manage this as a global issue uh, really have to come to the fore now. Uh, the Prime Minister has uh, talked about the size of this portfolio and how we have, um, I guess, arrangements, if needed, to purchase way more vaccine than we do uh, have citizens. We've always, obviously also have taken from the COVAX supply or will take from the COVAX supply, uh, which is an organization designed to help underprivileged countries. Can we, this is a moral issue, is it not, Thomas? I mean, here we are standing by and watching the Canadian government outbid or buy up supply from the EU while they suffer. Mm. I mean, that's where we are, is it not? Yeah, well, well, definitely it's, it's uh, you know, we, it's come to the, you know, every, every, every country for themselves sort of aspect. And, uh, and we're just why. buying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so I think, you know, and that's where the, you know, the, the, uh, the, Initiatives from from the WHO uh, and and what you what you just mentioned, uh, but that, that's where they they're really important to try and you know sort of can can we come together as as a world community and say let let's try and work work together on this. But uh, but it, you know it, it uh, you know that 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 sort of presupposes that the uh, you know sort of the, the the national political pressures are are able to be addressed. Effectively, whereas uh, you know, yeah, definitely, you know, sort of what what we're hearing from from Italy and uh, you know other countries in in Europe, they're they're really uh, being you know badly affected at the moment, and uh, you know Germany and, and other countries are really, really, really going through it, and uh, you know going through major lockdowns, and and uh, you know it it really means that uh, you know uh, this vaccine supply, vaccine, you know. Uh, manufacturing distribution is is going to be uh, really the uh, the you know that's where the leverage is going to be in regard to uh, countries and uh, you know, div, you know w- whether or not they can get a get a grip on on the on the uh, in- infection rates in their communities. So so yes, it's going to be uh, it's definitely a political uh, political football now. Um, I had read a report that uh, Canada is the second biggest purchase, uh, purchaser of vaccine from uh, the European Union. Would the first be the UK since they're not connected anymore? Mm. Yeah, like like uh, as I you know as I understand, you know, uh, Canada has has put a lot of uh, you know has placed a lot of orders, but those orders are over you know a, a, a longer period of time, whereas whereas other countries have. Uh, Got in and, and placed the orders and tried to to get you know sort of large quantities you know sooner. So so I think if you, if you take the overall total numbers of orders, yeah, Canada's uh, up there and 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 the UK is is up there as well. 
Um, how long do you think this will go on before again? There's like you know, if they're not cutting off, um, if they're not cutting off vaccine from Canada, the second largest purchaser, would that mean they're going to cut off or slow the restriction or the uh, distribution down for the UK? If they're not going to cut off Canada's supply, as the minister says, who's are they going to take? Who's are they going to stop? Yeah, well, like that, let that's, you know, uh, more yeah. underprivileged countries. <laughs> Well, well, like you said, is that that's really a uh, you know you know a moral question as well. You know, in regard to uh, you know who do you who do you choose? You know, which which of the children do you do you uh, yeah. do you let go? So so it is a that's a you know so that's why I sort of you know say my my question is you know if 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 they are going to implement a implement some a restriction like this, you know I can't see that they'll they'll give Canada a pass on it. So so and if that happens, then it's uh, you know, it's going to definitely uh, very much affect the uh, the supply to supply here, and so so I think that means that the uh, you know the arrangements that they they've been talking about with the US might really uh, come into play uh, you know very strongly then. That was my next question, Thomas. Uh, does this put more pressure on the government to uh, increase the supply from the United States? Uh, obviously, we know the United States is going to be finished uh, uh, vaccination uh, by May, June, or, and, and the, the president talking about having backyard barbecues by uh, their 4th of, of July holiday. Does this put more pressure on the Canadian government to get more stuff from the United States, so we have to, so we can depend less on taking some from the U, uh, from the United, uh, or sorry, from the European Union. Yeah, well, well, definitely, you know, you know, if, if the supply from Europe, uh, you know, is is not able to, to to come, then then the then the question is where 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 will we get it from? And and uh, whereas I suppose the you know the the contracts are with with the with the companies, and so then you have to say, well, where are those? Where are the companies actually manufacturing the uh, the vaccines? And so, it, so it, you know, basically, we're in in either the U.S., Europe, uh, you know, India, Russia, but but you know, it depends on the depends on the com- uh, the company. And so, so yeah, it uh, it's it be, it's sounding like it could be uh, quite a quite a quite a mess if if it, if this this all goes through. It might be. It, it could be difficult to get that second dose. Well, well, definitely, and you know what I. You know, I've heard from people who uh, who have got the first dose, and uh, you know they they've said to me, well, you know we're you know our second dose is booked for like July, so you know they've got it you know early this month, and it's like, well, that's a that's a very you know substantial period of time between the first and second doses, considering the uh, recommended time frame is is you know three to four weeks, whereas now the second dose is pushed into you know three to four months, and so you 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 know. Like I understand why that's happening, but then, then uh, you know, hopefully, you know, evidence comes to light to show that that uh, you know, extending that uh, the second dose will will be uh, will be effective uh, and and won't compromise the the total you know the level of immunity of of the people getting it. So so we're in, we're in a uh, it's it's a definitely a day by day proposition and uh, you know. Quite a juggle in regard to trying to, you know, and and you know the the key thing is the uh, is vaccine supply. Uh, I know we were late to the game with with starting production, and it's it's probably going to be next year until we see anything that is uh, Canadian made. Anything more on that? Will it be next year before any of the production deals in Canada start to bear fruit? Yeah, like like definitely, you know, you would have to, you know. 
from what I what I understand it, you know, and where things are going, you know, you you would have to think that it's it's at least next year, uh, you know, and, yeah. and even you know, sort of mid part of next year, particularly, you know, when you think about you know the factories aren't you know aren't really really there yet. They're sort of partly built, you know. So so yeah, it, it's a there's a long long road ahead there for that, I think. All right. Thomas Tenkate has been with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. I really appreciate your time, and thanks for thanks for the opportunity. All right. You know, there's been some uh, chatter as we are seeing... Uh, numbers variants start to go up and there's been questions as to where we go from here as far as lockdowns and zones and such uh the west just having a tough time again uh, as alberta manitoba and saskatchewan are uh closing down uh, re-entering uh, uh more restriction uh, simply because the variants are getting out of control there and they're seeing more and more younger people in ICUs and such which is of concern and another gentle reminder it tain't over yet and we have to keep pushing through until everyone is fully vaccinated or at least those that want it hang on I'll get that there it goes uh all right as ha- <laughs> as hamilton sees i hope that wasn't the boss <laughs> Oh, my. As Hamilton sees rising numbers in COVID-19 infections, variant cases, I shouldn't be laughing here. Let's start. Oh, are you kidding me? You're going to hear this. Hello? No, I don't need my windows cleaned or my ducks. Thank you. That showed them. Here we go. Now they're going to be calling your house. So just be ready. Uh, As Hamilton sees rising numbers of COVID-19 infections, variant cases, outbreaks, and hospitalizations. Yes, it's serious. The city's chief medical officer says she is not recommending a lockdown at this point. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson tells uh, the city's general issues committee that public health is keeping a close eye on the numbers. And certainly we could go into gray based on uh, solely the numbers. But when we looked back, as we showed you at the Board of Health um, and looked at what the impacts were of going through that framework, the biggest impact that we saw was doing broader lockdown on a broader basis rather than just doing it on our area alone. We're certainly at a stage where we're looking at which way do we go, and that's going to continue for the coming weeks. This is not going to be a decision we make today and then we decide, you know, once and for all, and we're going to stick. This is going to be something that we closely monitor day by day, just as we have done throughout the pandemic, but especially at these points where we sit on the cusp of decisions. Whether we're talking about economics and people's jobs and, and how successful our business is, or whether we're talking about uh, viruses and how they impact people and people ending up in hospital and ICU, these are all health issues. And so with those, uh, we're very mindful of that within public health overall in terms of what the impacts are. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, and, and something to take note of here uh, as to what the doctor said, um, you know, a lot of people are complaining, well, it's this now and then it's that. And then it's this now and then it's that. And then they say this and then they say that. This is not their, <laughs> This is not something they take lightly. And uh, the reason it changes is because we're in a global pandemic with little vaccine coming in, starting to pick up, starting to see mass vaccination, but we're still a long way away. And as the doctor said, what you hear today may greatly change tomorrow. So stay low and be nimble because it will change again. 
as we work through this. And I and, and, and everybody's fatigued. Everybody's cranky. Everybody's upset about this. But again, um, it's going to change and it's going to continue to change until we're out the other end of this. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with you. Uh, talk about this fine line that we're all walking right now, especially those of you that are in uh, y- you know, the positions that you're in, trying to help us all and keep us all safe, uh, as well as trying to manage all of this. Where is Hamilton now? Well, Hamilton is is uh, doing two things simultaneously. One is trying to control a rising number of cases, which is concerning, uh, and trying to figure out how best to, to, to make that happen, while at the same time trying to accelerate as much as possible the vaccination of our population. But you, you nailed it in the early part of it. Uh, we are not clear of this thing by any stretch at the moment. I mean, in Hamilton, we will now be just over 10% of the adult population vaccinated. That is a long way from where we would need to be to say, you know, these restrictions and some of these measures can be pulled back. Uh, and so what we see is a rising number of cases. We still have people in hospital with COVID-19 uh, and, and outbreaks happening, 34 as of yesterday uh, in our community. And so there's lots of that going along while we are doing the very important work of vaccinating the by the entire community. So it's it's a difficult balance. I think what Dr. Richardson was saying, I don't think I know what she was saying, because we've had these conversations the last couple of days, is, you know, it's very hard for Hamilton to, to say the absolute best thing to do is move into a, another category right now, because to be honest, that category doesn't offer a lot more than what we have now. We're very restricted at the moment, uh, with the exception of indoor dining, which changed, uh, which really wasn't driving our numbers because it just changed on Saturday morning. So we don't know the effects of the, uh, the the larger numbers of people that can dine indoors. Our numbers were high heading into the weekend, regardless of that change. But in gray now, retail is open, just maybe at a reduced level. Uh, there is the ability to do many of the things. So we have to think about you know what the best balance is now as we rush to uh, to get the, as much vaccine out. And it's a much trickier decision right now, Scott, because of the fact we're trying to get these vaccinations out. And we're also recognizing that over a year in, uh, this constant pulling back and moving forward uh, is having a huge impact on, on other parts of our community. And that we have to be very mindful of. Hmm. So it was there was easier, I would say, at the beginning of this to say, you know, we have to shut everything down because we didn't know much about this virus. We weren't clear in terms of how best to control it. Uh, so the last thing I'll say is that we know what to do to to effectively and safely have activities happen. I will say the reality of what we're seeing with increasing cases is that clearly not all of those public health measures are being adhered to. So there was chatter of moving to uh, Hamilton, moving to a gray lockdown. Uh, the doctor has clarified that we're going to stay where we are for now. Uh, where? How did we get there? What sort of uh, can you elaborate that on, on, on that in any way? Sure, and I think it's clear to, to, to note that Dr. Richardson today said what her advice is that she's providing to the province. Ultimately, our categorization is is a decision made by the province and by cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, the, the city of Hamilton does not um, say it. Now, we're asked for our advice and our opinion. And right now, Dr. Richardson has, has been clear that her opinion is that we would remain in red. But we look at these things every week. You don't remain in something for a long period of time. You have to keep looking at the numbers. So what the province will do this week is what the province will do. Um, but 
you know, to Dr. Richardson's point, uh, you know, our cases are high. Absolutely. Uh, our outbreaks are, are high. We're, we're dealing with a number of them. But we have had great coverage in terms of the vaccine and the uptake of vaccine by those most vulnerable in our long-term care facilities. Our long-term care uh, facility outbreaks are, are, are small, they're dropping, and of course, the number of, of deaths that are associated with that have really, really come down. So those are all good news things. And then there's this balance of business and people, you know, doing things that they need to do in community. So this is the, this is the tricky part we're at. So could we head into another category? It would be a, a more restrictive category. Absolutely. Uh, that would be very tough on people. And I know people don't want to go there. Uh, and clearly the advice from Dr. Richardson is that, that we remain where we are at the moment. But ultimately, this decision is the provinces and they will, uh, as they do each week, uh, review where, where communities are and move people up or down the uh, control categories. And what about hospital capacity, Paul? Where are we now? How, how, uh, wh- what situation is that with ICUs and such? We remember, obviously, at the beginning of this, uh, it was of great concern, uh, which is why, uh, you know, uh, the health system adjusted the way that it did. Uh, but what about hospital capacity at this point? Uh, so hospitals are concerned. There's a number of, of a, a growing number of uh, cases of COVID-19 within the hospital. But it's important to note that that a, a good number of that is being driven by outbreaks within the hospital. So this isn't people that are from the community heading uh, to hospital as a result of COVID-19. It's actually that they're already in hospital and now um, we've had some outbreaks at uh, at our hospital system. So I would say there's concern in talking to uh, to the hospital leadership. They're concerned. They want to continue to monitor. But are we in a, a crisis situation in hospitals quite yet? No. Uh, and I think this is what everyone is doing is watching to see how can we do the things we need to do to keep numbers. You'll never get them down to, to zero right now, particularly with the variance of concern. But how do we keep the numbers uh, you know, at an, at an acceptable rate as we continue to vaccinate and vaccinate and vaccinate. And since one of the largest predictors of really poor outcomes, hospitalization and death is age, uh, we need to keep working down that age category. And we've been doing it 85 to 80, now to 75. We need to get 70. It's going to go in five uh, year increments. So the more we can get done, the quicker we can move to that next five year increment. Uh, and we want to get that down to to those that are, you know, sort of 60 plus as a goal in these early stages. And then, of course, the rest of the broad population as well. So it's um, I don't like the term race against the variants or race against cases because we're going to have this this virus with us for for a long time. But what I think we're trying to do is make sure that we protect those who are most vulnerable and are at risk of hospitalization and or death. Uh, first, do that very quickly and then we can, you know, just keep moving through the rest of the population. How concerned are you, Paul, with uh, the numbers of people being infected and becoming ill is is growing in the younger demographics? Obviously, now as we uh, start to make a great impact on those in long-term care and, and seniors, as you said, over 75, 80 and such, uh, we're seeing more and more young people we're hearing in the ICUs. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I continue to say my, my statement is this is not a virus you want to get. And and we understand the science and we understand the data around who is perhaps um, more vulnerable, not perhaps, but who is more vulnerable to hospitalizations and death. But that is not a no one else will ever have adverse outcomes comment. That is that this is where it happens in higher volumes. And we saw that in the first and second wave in our long-term care facilities, retirement homes. Everybody knows that story. But this isn't a virus anybody wants to get. 
And uh, while many people recover very quickly and may not have long effects, there are all sorts of things which are coming out which are concerning, and and uh, we've heard lots of stories about that. So I think the best thing we can do uh, from a concern perspective is continue to remind people that there are very simple, straightforward ways to avoid uh, contracting this virus and spreading this virus. And if we do follow those, we can do a lot of things. You know, just today I talked about our recreation division really, you know, putting some their shoulder into making sure that we're ready to open golf courses and, and tennis courts and, and basketball courts and things like that. Get people active and outside. This isn't about, you know, lock yourself in for the next 18 months kind of deal. Yeah. This is about doing some things, but we need to do them safely. And what we're seeing, obviously, is that those safety protocols, which we should be putting in place, are, are just not being followed. And in very similar ways to why we buckle our seatbelt. Uh, wear a helmet, do some other things in our life, and we do those like routinely. We have to remember mask wearing, keeping our distance, washing our hands frequently. And the big one is if you are sick or feel sick, don't go anywhere. Uh, don't, and, and the only place you would be going is to get a test to confirm whether you have COVID-19 or not, uh, or to your healthcare provider if you needed that. So if we follow those types of rules. We can, we can do a lot in our community, even in these times where we're waiting for vaccine levels to get where we want them to be. Uh, we certainly know over the last year how this has affected uh, holiday weekends and, and um, you, you know, various uh, uh, events in uh, Canada throughout the course of the last year. We remember at Christmas uh, around the holiday time, uh, there was lots of warnings coming from people such as yourself. You know, we got to be careful here because two weeks for after those holidays, we see a, a surge again. Are you concerned about Easter or the fact that we are starting to vaccinate? That's going to balance it out. I know, concerned about Easter for sure. And the advice this year is, is going to be unfortunately the same as last year, which is uh, this is a year to celebrate with your own household, uh, to follow all those measures. I, you know, given where Easter is falling, we're, we're not that far away from it. I, I find it very unlikely that we're going to be in a less restrictive category where there could be larger gatherings of people indoors. And so uh, the advice is going to be very similar as it has been. Uh, through some holidays. We're going to get there to holidays where it could be a little bit less restrictive, maybe a few more people in an outdoor setting for sure. Uh, We're not there yet. So if people are planning on uh, pushing the envelope in Easter, uh, my advice would be to uh, rethink that. Uh, Just go online and look at what the red control category says. And this is about continuing to only get together with uh, household members or very limited contact with others if, if absolutely necessary. For instance, as a caregiver, if you have to get somebody in to repair something in your home. Um, and then the other side of this is, uh, you know, go out and do things, but only when they're really essential uh, and, and try and, and find ways to stay close to home. And I would guess the only caveat with the nicer weather coming is that uh, outdoor activities are much lower risk and done safely. People could get outside and enjoy their time outside uh, very safely and effectively. And so plan more of that and a little less of these indoor gatherings. So uh, obviously the vaccination uh, train has started. So uh, give us an, uh, another reminder uh, if those in Hamilton are looking, who who is eligible and what can we do to get a vaccination? So there are a number of healthcare workers that are eligible. Uh, all this is on our website and it's best to check there because uh, they are prioritized in terms of healthcare workers uh, as to who can get the vaccine. Now, the big thing is age. And for those that are 75 years or older, 
Uh, so you don't lose your eligibility as we move. It, once you're eligible, you're always eligible. So if mm-hmm. you are an 85-year-old and you didn't get the vaccine a few weeks ago or haven't booked in, uh, you can book in now, even though we've moved down to the 75 range. And uh, online booking, there are some spaces that are available on our online booking tool. I know there was um, a moment uh, earlier in the week where there were none available. There are some more available. And then the hotline is available for those who can't book using the online tool. But uh, really, it's that age category of 75 plus. Uh, let's uh, you know get everybody uh, fired up to to get their appointments, and we will have as many appointments as we possibly can given our supply. More will coming online as the week goes on, and we're also going to get a lot better at putting out uh, opportunities to book appointments uh, several weeks in advance. We're just uh, making sure that we understand our supply so that we're never in a position where somebody books an appointment and we have to call and say, sorry, we don't have the vaccine for you that day. Right now, everybody, you come, if you've got an appointment, you're going to get your vaccine. And that's the last piece I'd like to stress, Scott, is that you must have an appointment. None of our centers are walk-up. So uh, if you don't have an appointment, you will be turned away at these facilities. And again, that's a supply issue because we need to make sure we've got it for those who booked. Um, So our big push is age-related for sure, 75-plus. Obviously, uh, for adults in the Indigenous population, they can call in and and to our hotline and and book as well. And then there's healthcare workers that can book. But uh, you're going to see a lot of push to get these age categories vaccinated at a very high rate so that um, particularly our older population are well protected from this virus. And how are the mass vaccination clinics going like First Ontario Centre? Smooth. We're hearing tremendously good results as people exit. I get that there's been challenges sometimes with booking and we're working hard to be better at that. Uh, So a little bit of patience there is appreciated. But once people get to the site, uh, it went very smoothly. Uh, all our days uh, so far have been, been just smooth. And this morning we heard at our you know, committee meeting from councillors who are saying, yes, the, uh, when people arrive and they move through the process of getting their vaccine, uh, it's really straightforward. We'll take about 30 to 45 minutes, and, you know, depending on volume and other things that are going on. So, you know, you're in and you're out in less than an hour. And uh, all the way along, uh, people are there to help and assist. And if uh, transportation's an issue, our folks on the hotline can arrange for that. Uh, when you get there, there's lots of people to help uh, move people through. So wayfinding and all the rest isn't an issue. And they're going very well. People are really, really happy. And by the way, it's almost 72,000 people now in the city of Hamilton that have, uh, have received a, a dose of vaccine. A little more than 10% of our adult population, which is slightly ahead of the provincial average today. So that's good. Uh, we're making some progress, Scott. We'd like it to be faster. That's going to rely on supply. We hope that supply increases. And uh, next, we'll be opening Rosedale as a seven-day-a-week site, uh, Rosedale Arena. That'll open in early April. And we continue to have mobile and pop-up sites uh, doing some vaccine work in smaller doses and smaller capacities uh, as well. So everything is moving. And from all from all the feedback that we're getting, when people get into these clinics, uh, they're finding it to be a very uh, smooth process, uh, and obviously they're very happy at the end of it. Paul Johnson, Director of the Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton, uh, now taking reservations for 75-plus, and a reminder, you need an appointment in order to get vaccinated. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. I know it's a tough gig. Uh, good luck and uh, all the best to, uh, to those on the staff that are working so hard to keep us all safe. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Here's today's daily commentary.
I'll never forget a news conference held by then-premier Dalton McGuinty over 15 years ago. He proudly boasted the Liberals are not interested in building any more highways in Ontario. Premier Wynne sang from the same songbook. Unfortunately, their fantasy did nothing to provide an alternative. And I think we can all safely say the congestion along the Golden Horseshoe Corridor has only gotten worse, certainly not better because of this, and nothing changed under 15 years of liberal rule other than sky-high electricity rates. Now we have the current liberal leader trying to distract from Wynn's past mistakes and the federal liberal's inability to produce vaccine for its citizens by trying to move attention off vaccine, saying if elected, they would kill the proposed 413 highway northwest of Toronto. Is this their priority? And don't we need more infrastructure, not less? We are growing. Again, we have another liberal leader more interested in preaching saving the planet to win an election than saving Canadians, while Canada languishes below 50th in the world to vaccinate its own citizens. Can we please focus on what can actually help Ontarians now, instead of the smoke and mirrors of fashionable liberal election promises that go nowhere? Then at least we will have a road to drive on for all the electric vehicles Canada is investing in. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter, and we were we had a guest on yesterday uh, talking about this, and uh, obviously it's something that we do have to bring up every time we talk about this issue because we have to separate the politics from the people. And anti-Asian racism is on the rise in Canada, specifically in BC, Ontario, and Quebec, which, of course, are Canada's uh, most diverse provinces uh, across the country. Uh, people uh, from all over the world uh, arrive in those destinations uh, simply because of uh, the opportunity that they provide and, of course, the diverse communities that are within them. Uh, obviously, Canadians and those around the world are very upset with China. And there's been no shortage of polling coming out, whether, well, I don't, lots of polls out there uh, that, that have uh, documented that, uh, you know, even up to 90% of Canadians, uh, and that's of all races, are very upset with China and very upset specifically with the Chinese Communist Party. However, people are carrying that anger over on to the citizens that are living here immigrants that have come to this country uh just like every other immigrant my mother did i'm first generation canadian uh and 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 trying to start a new life uh and are being uh attacked by those who have uh feelings uh negative feelings towards the chinese communist party so how do we uh how do we hold uh the chinese communist party to account and have these debates and have these discussions and not take it out on canadians who are here uh and you know this is just not chinese canadians it, it, it's 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 across the asian community people who aren't even from china are, are starting to feel the heat here so more education uh, is needed. Uh, does the government need to do more to clarify this and 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 denounce China and the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, it's all part of the discussion. And you know, for example, if there is a bully, uh, it's restorative justice. It's not just a case of 
telling the bully to stop what he's doing or her doing and 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 discipline them for that it's to try to find out why and i believe the reason why we're seeing what we're seeing is because canada and the rest of the world has a very 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 poor uh, uh feeling towards china and the chinese communist party because of the uyghurs the two michaels uh less than transparent when it comes to covid 19 so it's not is if there are not plenty of things to be angry with the Chinese Communist Party about. However, taking it out on the citizens is not the answer. What is? Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute and is with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So how do we deal with this, Charles? How do we keep the pressure on the Chinese Communist Party? How do we make sure that these issues are dealt with and dealt with in the right manner uh, and not take it out on the people, the citizens, the immigrants that have come here for a better life? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are a lot of uh, Chinese-Canadian families who've been here for many generations, descendants of the uh, railway workers, some um, you know, a lot of them have been Canadians uh, or living in Canada for longer than you and me. I'm, I'm the same thing. Both my parents came from other countries to have a better life here in Canada. I think that there has been a, a continuing issue of perception among um, mainstream Canadians that people who have Asian faces are not really Canadian. You know, it's sort of along mm-hmm. the lines of, um, you know, a, a Chinese young person whose family's been in Canada for several generations meets somebody and they say, where are you from? And she says something like, well, um, I'm originally from Burlington, but we live in Dundas now. And they, then people say, where are you really from? You know, mm-hmm. you know, as if they can't be Canadian. So I think that's uh, one aspect. The other aspect is, of course, that our Chinese Canadians are suffering from harassment from the Chinese regime, trying to pressure them to identify with the Chinese Communist Party-led People's Republic of China and refer to it as the motherland. And I don't think our government has done enough to protect those Canadians from this kind of harassment. You know, the the government says, well, if you've got a problem, call the police. You know, that's what Mr. Champagne, our former foreign minister, said. Just call the local police. But they call the local police, and the local police tell them to get in touch with the RCMP. The RCMP suggests that they register it with CSIS. Um, you know, they get the runaround, and the bottom line is that, that there is a lot of this going on, and not enough is being done about it. And I think it's, you know, a sort of inherent racism in Canada that if white Canadians were being harassed by agents of a foreign state, we would be on it right away, but that somehow or other Chinese people, you know, still have some beholdenness to the People's Republic of China. So, uh, you know, we send out our own signals in our own way. But uh, certainly, you know, I think that in general, from people that I know who who live in in this part of uh, Canada who have Chinese or Asian-looking faces, they are picking up on hostility um, from uh, Canadians, you know, when they're just going about their normal shopping and so on. And I think it's mostly because of COVID-19 and people look at them and say, oh, you know, your people gave us the COVID-19 and uh, it's it's really uh, a little bit scary about where that may lead in the future. 
Um, you know, I had this discussion with somebody uh, yesterday and, 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 and brought up the same issue that you did, that, you know, there's a lot of pressure from the homeland on Chinese Canadians to toe the party line and certainly not speak out against it. She blew that off and said, no, nah, it's not. It's just good old-fashioned uh, prejudice. And, and, you know, you even uh, used the word white. Um, is this just white people who are... Uh, offending Chinese Canadians? Because, again, if we look at the polling, well over 90% of all Canadians do not have a favorable view of the Chinese Communist Party or China. You can use whatever word. You can use angry. I mean, we've seen all of this in the polling, and well over 90%. That's just not white people. Well, yes, I quite agree. And, I mean, I think there is a lot of racism of, you know, people of different origins towards other people, you know, Indians who, uh, Hindus who don't like Muslims, that kind of thing. Of course, uh, traditionally in Canada, we had uh, more or less accepted systematized racism where the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were at the top and and the Catholics, especially the Irish, were were considered Mm -hmm. lesser. And after that, you had Indians and Chinese and maybe below that, um, Africans and West Indians. You know, that was... You know, it wasn't that long ago that the St. Catherine's Golf Club wouldn't take Jews. Well, you know that uh, that era is well yep. past us, and it's no longer acceptable to to discriminate against people based on those characteristics today. But you know, there's still a latent kind of racism which can well up, and I think that yep. you know the latent racism against people from um, East Asia uh, is being um, enabled by the resentment that everybody feels about uh, the restrictions that the COVID-19 is is putting on us all. You know, our inability to visit family members and uh, and travel and so on is really wearing on people, and they, they look for some place to vent their anger. And it seems that, that people with Chinese-looking faces get it. And, I mean, it's not just Chinese. I have a Korean friend whose mother got sworn at in Vancouver, and, of course, she has nothing to do with China. She's... You know, their family is from a different country altogether, but looks physically similar. Uh, And, you know, I'm not here to deny that there is systemic racism in this country. Uh, We wouldn't be having the discussion if there wasn't uh, 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 systemic racism in this country. But it seems what I'm hearing in this message is you're being racist. Stop being racist. And again, I I go back to the analogy of the bully. Uh, You're a bully. Stop bullying. That doesn't solve the problem. Uh, Restorative justice brings the two parties together, and they find out why the bully is bullying and why they are picking on that victim. And we don't seem to be having that discussion. We don't seem to be asking 90% of the population why they are upset with the Chinese Communist Party and have a poor view of China. If perhaps we spent more time understanding that, we wouldn't be in the position we are. Instead of having uh, a prime minister who seems to have a soft spot for this for for the Chinese Communist Party for China until recently, yeah, I think we definitely have to distinguish, um, you know, our Canadian democracy and honesty and uh, and reciprocal um, um, engagement, justice, commitment to justice, and the equality of citizens from the agenda of the Chinese Communist Party, and I. And I agree with you. I don't think our government has uh, has done this clearly enough. Um, you know, Mr. Trudeau's father seemed to be 
quite um, friendly with dictators like Fidel Castro and, and Mao Zedong, uh, who were engaged in you know appalling violations of the human rights of their people at the same time as he was promoting the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, I would say, though, that, you know, it's not, we have done some things to try and redress the past. You know, we paid compensation for the survivors of the discriminatory uh, head tax. And, um, you know, we have apologized for the policies up to 1947 that would not allow persons of Chinese origin to become Canadian citizens um, and uh, and uh, to enter into certain professions like medicine, law, and pharmacy, and so on. So, you know, our government has taken those symbolic measures to acknowledge that the systemic discrimination against uh, people of Chinese origin in Canada was real. But, um, you know, as you say, it seems that that uh, Chinese people are feeling that uh, that they're not uh, welcomed in their own society, and that is worrying. So what can the federal government do to fix this? Because it seems the prime minister is quick to scold us all as if we were kids in his class, mm-hmm. but doesn't really seem to do much to fix the problem. You know, I mean, I think it is the double standard where, you know, we feel it's acceptable for the Chinese regime to engage in human rights violations and we'll continue to, to trade with them and everything and, and simply uh, ignore what's going on where we wouldn't tolerate it um, in our own country. So, you know, I do think it's time for our government to get clear on exactly how we stand with that regime and how Canadians, including Canadians of Chinese origin, you know, many of uh, the Canadians of Chinese origin, of course, don't come from the People's Republic of China. They come from Taiwan. They come from Hong Kong. They come from Indonesia, Malaysia. You know, there are lots of places that have significant ethnic Chinese uh, uh minorities who have um, who have chosen to make a better life in Canada. So we really have to, to start drawing the line a bit better. And uh, I'm not sure that our current prime minister really gets that message. I'm not sure how people feel once the prime minister starts scolding us again, whether it's this or, or whatever the issue is uh, that's important to him. Does that scolding only add to the resentment? Because to me, it, it, to me, it makes it, it, to me it would make Canadians feel you're not listening. You don't get what the issue is here. You're just telling us to stop, as opposed to understanding why ninety percent of Canadians feel the way that they do. Yeah, I think it's the the virtue signaling aspect of of our prime minister's uh, statements uh, does tend to, to to lack credibility, and you know you have to follow up what you're saying with actual substantive policy to correct it. And I think being much more um, defensive of the, of the rights of, of persons of Chinese origin in Canada to be free from menace and harassment from the agents of a Chinese state would start to send out that signal. We have to declare Chinese diplomats who are doing this as, you know, as their function in Canada, as persona non grata. We have to start bringing people who don't enjoy Chinese diplomatic protection um, to court to to account for what they're doing. It's a very clear signal that that persons of Chinese origin in Canada are as equally um, eligible for the protection of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as all the other groups uh, in in our country. So, you know, these would be the things that could be done. Um, Otherwise, I think that 
that people will continue to identify persons with Chinese faces with the policies of the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, for a lot of them, the reason that they came to Canada was to escape the Chinese Communist Party, yeah. not because they collaborate with them in their, in their non-democratic anti-human rights agenda. Are Chinese Canadians being silenced, and that's preventing them from speaking up and educating everybody as opposed to, uh, you know, letting it get to the point of abuse? Yeah, you know, I think that there is a tendency in that community to to not make waves and, you know, to, to not be as aggressive and demanding their rights as culturally some other groups may be inclined to do. So, you know, as, a, as someone who's the, the language of my home is the Chinese language, so I speak Chinese all day long and interact with people in that language as part of my daily life. And they'll say a lot of things to me about what's going on that I think they're reluctant to, to say sort of outside, like they see it as an internal problem that we have to deal with. And I think that's a, you know, a characteristic of of the of the Chinese civilization to be very tolerant of, of uh, people who who abuse you outside because you don't want to reduce yourself to their level by engaging them in an equal way. So, what is your message to Canadians in the midst of this issue? Issue. I you know I don't really know what to say to people who who hold these prejudices. You know, as you say, uh, saying to them like just stop it. This is ridiculous. Um, you know, these people have nothing to do with with the COVID crisis and and so on. Just doesn't seem to have any any presence. Um, I, I do think that that we could be doing more to celebrate the contribution of of uh, Chinese Canadians to the building of Canada. And I think that we ought to to have more awareness of of um, you know the the patriotic. Um, um, Canadianness of this particular group, who, you know, have been exemplary uh, immigrants to our country and and done an awful lot for our economy and and you know you just have to look around at universities and hospitals to see how many Chinese Canadian names there are and the donors who have made donations to the common good and appreciation for what they have here in Canadian society. So I I, I just you know I just I don't think there's any easy fix. For, uh, for prejudice beyond trying to, to make them appreciate that they're misunderstanding things and should be more tolerant and, and frankly, you know, like love your fellow man. Like what's hmm. the point of hate? Good point. Uh, obviously, China shows no sign of changing direction. When anyone resists, they just double down, as we've seen. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> there's lots of examples of that. Um, since China is showing no signs of changing or doing anything to win the appreciation of Canadians that it has lost, where do you see this going? I'm very worried about how it's developing. You know, it looks like we're heading into a, a conflict situation, like a a war where you know one side is on one is defining one position and the other side is the other, and there's no space for dialogue and compromise. And if that happens, then we could see you know people of Chinese origin in Canada subject to even more of these kinds of incidents and resentments as they're identified as the enemy. 
and you know this really worries me uh, as uh, as things are panning out as the as the relations as you know between Canada and China are rapidly deteriorating um including the more recent uh, sanctioning of Chinese officials complicit in the Uyghur genocide which the Chinese government is not likely to just uh, let go you know they're going there's going to be there's going to be kickback and it's going to be pretty nasty i think Charles Burton has been with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, talking about anti-Asian racism, which is on the rise, especially in British Columbia, Quebec and Ontario, uh, as a result of the majority of Canadians, over 90%, not having a favorable view of the Chinese Communist Party. But we have to remember to separate that from the citizens who are living here and are Canadian. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. It's good to speak with you on this important topic. I hope we can continue the dialogue, Scott. You know, I think it's almost something we have to touch on every time we touch on these issues because this that the, these issues flare people up. Yeah. Yeah, we just can't let it go. It's got we've got to do something about this. Charles, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. The majority of Canadians not happy with the direction that China is going in, the Chinese Communist Party specifically. Uh, but again, no reason to take that out on Asian Canadians and immigrants that are here, uh, just like all of our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, however many generations uh, you are down the line. Uh, you know, again, uh, we all have, I'm first-generation Canadian, lots of stories of those that came from other parts of the world to have a better life here in Canada, and that should not be held against uh, Asians that have done the exact same. However, we still have to be able to have the discussion uh, about the Chinese Communist Party and uh, it, the direction it is now taken. I mean, 10, 20 years ago, it was the golden goose. Everybody wanted a part of it. And since then, things have changed drastically. And we have to do something to address the issue as well as the anti-Asian uh, racism that we're seeing as a result of lack of action. Let's be honest. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.